0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Be sure not to miss the crypto workshop I'm teaching with Melton Demiris of Coinshares and Jala Joban Pudra of Future Perfect Ventures at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, from September 20th to the 22nd. In addition to fascinating discussions, there will also be yoga, healthy food and hiking and other outdoors activities on Omega's beautiful 250 acre campus. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to sign up. Also, Unchained is now on YouTube. You can find the most recent episodes there every week on the Unchained Podcast channel. And if you're not yet subscribed to my weekly newsletter, go now to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up.
1: Cyphertrace makes it easy for exchanges and crypto businesses to comply with cryptocurrency anti money laundering laws, avoid illegal sources of funds, and maintain healthy banking relationships. Cyphertrace is helping you grow the crypto economy by keeping it safe and secure coindesk the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto is hosting consensus its annual event in new york city tickets are on sale now at www.consensus2019.com that's consensus with a u and you can save 300 if you use promo code unchained 300 live from the sub-zero conference in berlin my guests today
0: are Yota Steiner, co-founder and CEO of Parity, and Gavin Wood, co-founder and chief whitespace overlord of Parity. Welcome, Gavin and Yota. Thank Thanks. you. How did you each get involved in crypto? And Gavin, why don't you start? Because I think your involvement predated Yota's.
2: Mm. Well, I guess it goes back to, um, I think it was early 2013 when I was uh, sitting in bed reading a newspaper article on uh, this crazy uh, place in Berlin where there was this uh, this guy, uh, Jörg, who was uh, – oh, he had a bar on this street, Graeferstrasse in Berlin. And he was talking about how it was kind of quite anti-establishment. There was a lot of kind of artists, sort of squatters. It was very kind of – a very foreign scene from my point of view. I was sort of living in a in a suburb of Leeds at the time, and he was talking about how a lot of the businesses were switching to, or it was making it seem at least how a lot of the businesses were switching to Bitcoin for their means of payment between each other. And it it really got me thinking. Um, you know, this is you know is this legitimately you know a sort of sea change in in how the world could work. Um, around the same time, Silk Road was also gathering some uh, sort of infamosity. In uh, you know, uh, but it was all again linked. Uh, there was you know, Tor, crypto, Bitcoin, um, and together they sort of made me um, sort of think there was m- there might be some sort of underlying kind of social change happening here. So I I sort of set about it to in- investigate a bit further, and I met a guy also featured in the article called the Miyataki, I went down to London to see him just to sort of have a chat and, and figure out, you know, what, what's what's going on here. And one thing led to another. I sort of got to know a bunch of people in the space and eventually Vitalik. And I um, I sort of set about working on on Ethereum, which he'd, he'd very recently published a white paper on, um, sort of proposal for, um, if you like, a kind of um, a rethink of, of blockchain or Bitcoin. It was all Bitcoin at the time. There wasn't really blockchain back then. And I, I figured this would be a really interesting way of getting to learn about the technology and also, in some sense, understand at a deeper level what sort of implications it might have for society in general. So um, it was around December 2013 that I I said about coding Ethereum, basically. And things progressed kind of quickly from, from there on for me. Um, January going to Miami and sort of meeting all of the all the other guys in the sort of space and uh, February we basically kind of launched um, the thing that I've been writing as the the sort of initial proof of concept of Ethereum and yeah I mean a lot of uh, a lot of crazy um, antics followed and uh, here we are now
0: yeah seriously I mean your story is yeah obviously a, an important one in the Ethereum space and Yota how about you.
3: I got involved a few months later, around May 2014, so almost five years ago now, coming from a bit of a different angle, mainly driven through a personal lead, I guess. Like I was, I got more and more concerned after the Snowden revelations, like how our lives work online, privacy, what's happening to my data. So I was researching like what's the most up-to-date tool for sharing personal data encrypted end-to-end and found discussions online where people um, were speculating how to use Ethereum in that context. And that got me interested. I think I I first came across Matesave and then some links later found myself on on Reddit, people talking about Ethereum and uh, then saw that Gav would be in Berlin speaking at the Bitcoin meetup back then then, um, about
0: Ethereum. And so I went there and that's how I got to know the people and got more and more interested. And so... As we have mentioned you know before Ethereum, it really was all about Bitcoin, and so why did you guys become so captivated by ethereum itself to me
3: it was, was really like that idea like how to how to rearchitect the web and I think Gav crystallized that very succinctly in the post that he wrote, wrote about Web three and the idea of um, how to build a complete peer to peer stack of the of the web to to fix a lot of the issues that we see these days, so that was really. Really what i what so much resonated with me like being fed up with the fact that i had to rely on all these de facto institutions online um yeah
2: yeah when i um when i came to the space i guess it was uh, you know i saw bitcoin before 2013 but i kind of dismissed it as being a bit of a wacky idea this sort of currency that didn't really have any real sort of meaning or or, or grounding in the world And it was only later when I figured that actually there might be some legitimate utility uh, in the technology underlying Bitcoin. Um, When Ethereum came along, I could see it was an improvement, but I couldn't really understand what the the real ramifications were. Like it was, um, if you go back to the initial uh, proposal that Vitalik made um, in late 2013, it was really kind of a more programmable version of Bitcoin, but it wasn't, there wasn't anything you know fundamentally different in how it was in how it was being pushed it was still very much a purely a blockchain solution the idea was that you had you had money the idea was that you could attach rules to the money but the sort of main distinction was that these rules could be Turing complete and that was that was all, all of the real communications about why is bitcoin um, why is ethereum different to bitcoin back then revolved around this Turing complete concept
0: and And just to explain, so because I'm not a technical person, like I have heard like a Turing complete, but what what is the significance of that?
2: Um essentially, it means that you can you can express any sort of set of rules or process or business logic that you want. so Turing Turing completeness uh, is is merely a way of of stating that um, a particular language um, can express basically any kind of concept that we can come up with.
3: So it's basically the difference between Bitcoin being a calculator that can do some specific things, and then a computer who can do which can do like anything basically. And-
2: That's all right. So when we got to actually writing Ethereum, I remember having a bit of a eureka moment in January 2014, where I sort of understood that the whereas Bitcoin was cryptocurrency. And whereas some other projects out there were really trying to become the crypto finance, well, you know, introducing financial contracts and so on, I understood that the um, the real sort of tangible um, utility of Ethereum was to become a sort of crypto legal system, and that would have that much more of a ramification for society in general. And as time went on, it became increasingly clear that for Ethereum to really have uh, you know utility or the utility it wanted to have it really needed to uh, pull together a number of other technologies so it was only one piece of a wider puzzle so the idea with bitcoin the idea of blockchain in general is to reduce trust between participants right so when we go and do a transaction society typically if we go down the shop and we buy some uh, bananas and we pay with our credit card we it involves Trusting a number of people that we don't really think about. We have to trust the credit card. Um, we have to trust the um, the guy who made the credit card machine. We have to trust the bank to process the transactions. We have to trust the receiving bank to process their their end. We have to trust um, any um, if there's any label on the banana that says, "Hey, this banana came from Brazil," then we have to uh, trust whoever you know put the label on. We have to trust the trademark of the label. We have to trust the shopkeeper that is selling us uh, bananas from um, that haven't gone off or they're not bad or that you know didn't have bad pesticides used in them and the the list goes on and on we trust an awful lot of people in our daily life and the idea of blockchain in general is to reduce this amount of trust that we have to that we have to um uh, put ourselves under but it it only works so far blockchain is only part of the answer another part of the answer is to ensure that there's you know An effective communications mechanism behind the blockchain or to the side of the blockchain that allows us to get information that perhaps the blockchain references but that we can't be sure is necessarily sort of true. So the blockchain isn't very good at storing lots and lots of information, publishing information or allowing people to communicate between each other. So there are additional technologies still in the cryptographic ecosystem, um, but that need to be created in order to allow blockchain to fulfill its sort of duty as the crypto decentralized trustless legal system. By basically allowing people to communicate in a way that they don't have to trust any additional sender. So if I want to talk to Yutta, for example, on um, email or on Facebook, um, then I have to trust either Mark Zuckerberg or uh, Sergey and, uh, and Larry to uh, not look at what I'm, I'm talking to her about or not change the messages or ensure that they get delivered on time, all the rest of it. So it's really about trying to build Blockchain in general for me, or the space for me, is about trying to build a wholly new set of technologies that can replace the way that we do things which rely on trust.
3: I think I tend to think slightly differently about the trust aspect these days. It's to me more about making trust a lot more granular. So when I think of Google and Facebook, like I probably trust Google that they do have really good operations and can do um, calculation, calculations really fast, like, but I don't trust them to actually care about my personal data. And like being able to make like all these different things that also these companies do in in a way like far more transparent and granular and accessible and and traceable for me. That's that's what I hope we can deliver.
0: Yeah, and something I've been thinking about is I don't know if it's even like that. Then we don't have to trust. It's that then instead we're trusting technology because we're still trusting something. But in your case where you know how the technology works, like maybe trust isn't the word that you would use, but in my case where I don't really know, you know, I like I can't check the code.
2: So the main thing is that you can, even if you yourself can't check the code, um, you can find somebody, you can go out, you can put an advert up, you can contact your brother-in-laws mate but you can find someone that you do trust to some degree and have them check the code for you like someone who's an expert or you can pay multiple experts none of whom have aligned interests and get them all to check the code in principle that avenue is open to you in an in a system that's open and transparent it's never open to you in a system that's closed and opaque like the traditional corporate um silicon valley style startup uh where you know these, the operations and the um, internal workings of the systems are closely guarded.
0: Yeah. Or on the flip side, also the big Wall Street institutions right. too. And actually one other thing I wanted to ask when you were describing that kind of vision that you had, and you were saying that there needed to be other entities in this um, decentralized legal system, like what are some examples of other entities you're thinking of?
2: Um, so the main, the main aspects of, of this kind of decentralized economy that i put forward um aside from the sort of crypto legal system were a means of publishing um, information in a cryptographically secure manner um, Is,
0: would that be like an oracle or
2: that would be a, basically a bit like BitTorrent, a bit oh, like okay. a, um, a means of like just pushing information off to the to the cloud to the, okay. to the decentralized but not necessarily
0: verifying it
2: But not necessarily verifying it, but certainly being able to be sure that if you um, download some information that you believe um, that you have some digest of. So you've been given a a sort of key um, for the information, being certain that the information that you've been given um, exactly corresponds to what it is that you asked for. And that's not something that we have at the moment. If I want some information from I don't know a website or whatever, I I can go to the website and I have a URL, so I have like. Someone, so Jutta says, here's a URL, go read this news article. Then I can put the URL into Google Chrome and it will go and download the news article. But I can't be sure that it's the same news article that Yutta read. Now, most of the time it will be, but if I live in a, uh, in a more repressive state that has a greater control on the media, then I don't get that guarantee quite so solidly. And what we have here is the ability to, um, if Yutta gives me a special key, what we call a hash or a digest, then any information that that I get, I can actually check to make sure that this is uh, that this the, the digest of this information, the digest of the news article, exactly matches this much shorter hash or digest that, that that Yotta gave me. So I can be sure that I'm reading the same content.
0: Okay, so it's sort of like IPFS in a way. Exactly, yeah. Okay.
2: IPFS kind of came along and after BitTorrent, but it kind of um, at least parts of IPS solve a very similar problem and then the other one is like a means of communication between um, two or more parties this could be seen as somewhere between a a sort of instant messenger so the ability to sort of just send a message and, and have it arrive in a timely fashion at you know on someone else's computer or it can be seen as a sort of bulletin board where you can post a message and if people know the sort of topic that they're looking out, that they want to look out for, that your message um, sort of mentions, then they will get your message. That can be seen more like Twitter, right? right. So you, you you use a hashtag, and people who are following that hashtag can see um, can see your message. So something that's sufficiently. General to be able to be used for all of these different kind of communication use cases, but is also again cryptographically secure. So you get certain guarantees. You get guarantees that if they don't know the topic, they won't be able to read the message. When I've got the message, they won't know it ever existed. If they, if I send a message and I say it's from me, then whoever reads it knows that it's definitely me who wrote it. And again, you don't get these on traditional platforms because if you post a message on Facebook, it's Facebook that that tell people it's you who posted it. And if, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's having a bad day and he really doesn't like you and he wants to make you – he wants to sort of make you post something that you didn't actually post, then he's perfectly uh, able to go into his servers and (laughs) insert a message that claims to be from you, but it actually isn't. Of course, he's not going to do that, but hackers might do that and they could make your life um, kind of uh, annoying if they wanted to.
0: Oh, Yeah. Yeah, which has happened a ton already, uh, both in the non-crypto space and the real, and the crypto space. So you guys had these ideas, which actually are similar, or at least converge, um, and you were both officially working with Ethereum, and then you left to start Parity in late 2015. Why, what was the motivation for that, and what does Parity do?
2: So there are a number of reasons why, uh, you know, why, why that sort of turn of events happened, but... Um, the sort of big underlying, uh, one was that Ethereum was, was a project that was at the time it had been launched. It was in some sense, as far as version one went, uh, reaching a degree of maturity. So it had been built. It was now sort of out in the open. There was no clear governance on how it should change and there was no, um, sort of, Unlike a normal startup, it was uh, sort of um, based around a foundation that, that didn't again have a real, a, a clear um, roadmap or um, in terms of execution on how to actually move the thing forward. Because of course, um, Ethereum as a protocol sort of existed, and 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 the foundation didn't have any direct control over that. So, really, we wanted to, or at least for me, I, I wanted to sort of get out and and build. Sort of carry on building, build more stuff, and I, I felt in some sense that um, the foundation wasn't the right place to be doing that. Partly, you know, as a foundation, it was um, sort of constrained under what it's what it's able to do, both um, in terms of uh, resources and in terms of um, it, sort of missions and goals. And so, um, it, it felt a perfectly reasonable thing to sort of um, stay on good terms, but nonetheless work from within a private entity in the same ecosystem. So I didn't view it as leaving Ethereum. I viewed it as, as simply, you know, sort of setting up a um, an entity with which we could really um, um, deliver as much value as possible uh, in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. And you continued working on Ethereum because right. you guys have created, well, not just the parity Ethereum client, but then also you've been working with other blockchains doing stuff for Zcash and you also have some consumer facing products but think, now
3: yeah i oh. think for me it was really i mean i was working partially also on on some applications related like that wanted to use ethereum in supply chain on um, a project called provenance and for me it was really also the realization that it wasn't like even though it was like the first version it wasn't there yet for so you could actually use it and i felt there's a lot that needs doing sort of on the lower level again and um, how do you see the right way of doing that and that's what we committed to basically building blockchain technology um, and making that accessible for people
0: yeah which is kind of the perfect segue to your next big things you guys will be launching Polkadot dot uh, potentially later this year which is a new protocol how did you have the idea for Polkadot, and what problems are you attempting to solve with it
2: the idea of polka dot sort of goes back to i think it was late 2014 early 2015 um i wrote a small article called um chain fibers it's published i think it's still on the ethereum um, wiki and the idea was to put forward a means of scaling um ethereum so um what's now called sharding and uh, sort of an early version of of what perhaps um um, might be called ethereum 2.0 and it was something that, certainly for the first couple, I don't know, year, year and a half of Parity's existence, we we wanted to stay very much in line with um, uh, with the direction of the Ethereum Foundation and and, and the technology, um, the specifications and so on that they were putting out. But as time wore on, um, we kind of thought, well, you know, we're, we're kind of sat here, not twiddling our thumbs, but, you know, we really want to be developing cooler stuff. We don't want to let the world move on too far without us so um let's start thinking about you know how what what kind of cool stuff can we do so i went back to chain fibers and i thought well this is a this is a bit too similar to actual ethereum 2.0 so i don't want to do it itself because you know I, i much prefer to to just sort of stay in line with the um with the ethereum protocol itself but maybe we can create something from it that fulfills a sort of different task a different sort of niche or use case, and that was that was when i sort of i was like sat in a cafe I think in San Francisco with one of um, one of the our sort of um, uh, founding developers Marek, um, just sort of chatting about well, you know if we were to do something that was um, you know sharded or parallelizable, what would be the simplest possible way we could we could push this forward? you know how could we deliver something as soon as possible because you know i don 't want to take you know three forty five years in order to in order to get to this. So, we took chain fibers, we basically removed all of the stuff we made it as, the problem as simple as possible. i 'll give you an example of how we made it simpler in in Ethereum as it stands, and in chain fibers. The idea is that individual smart contracts if they want to interact with another smart contract, so if they want to like spend some tokens, for example, then that message would happen uh, synchronously, which means it happens immediately, so they get they get sort of all um, figured out all at the same time. Um, It's not that it happens seconds or minutes later. It's a lot harder to make things synchronous because if you have um, the way that you make a system scalable is you split up, you divide and conquer. So you split up the problem, the smart contracts, across lots and lots of different computers and you have them all execute them at the same time. That allows you to execute that many more. It's almost like uh, splitting a workload up between lots and lots of, like managers or whatever, <laughs> factory, factory floor workers. So they can each do the workload independently and come back and assemble the fin- finished product much faster than if one person were just sort of doing everything themselves. But the problem is that if the workload involves those, you know, several of these people sort of communicating with each other, then it becomes harder because they're, they're busy working off on their own corner, right? They, they can't talk to each other so easily. So what we did, we made it very simple and we said, right, well, actually they can't sort of talk to each other as they're as they're busy working off in their own corner they can only talk to each other sort of at the end of the day when all the messages sort of get rooted so you got we got a very simple memo system basically and that simplifies things an awful lot it made the protocol something that we believe we can develop you know in the next 18 to 24 months as as was in the next 18 to 24 months now what we realized not long after that was Why are we bothering all these workers when they're going off to their different corner and doing their jobs? Why are we insisting that these workers have the same kind of job? Why are we insisting that there's only kind of one type of job, the job of executing Ethereum smart contracts? Why don't we make it so that these workers can execute any kind of a job so we can make them each have their individual specialities, a domain that they can work in? So one could be a doctor and another could be a lawyer and another could be a postman and another could be a, a bank, a cashier. And then they can all come together and kind of chat to each other at the end of the day with a memo system, but most of the time they'd be off doing their individual specific, uh, domain-specific activity workload. And that's really where Polkadot came from. Polkadot was this idea of saying, right, well, when we scale, we don't necessarily have to just scale a single protocol A single kind of blockchain. We can actually scale, but also have lots of different kinds of blockchains all connected together, doing their each, doing their individual domain specific um, speciality, but still able to sort of chat to each other and critically share in the same security guarantees. Now, it, you know, of course, you can have many different blockchains, each doing their own thing. We already have that. We have Bitcoin doing currency, and we have Zcash doing sort of um, um, opaque uh, crypto crypto transaction currencies. We have Ethereum doing smart contracts. There are many different... Um, Uh, blockchains out there each fulfilling their uh, their independent domain specific goals Um, but the problem is that they each need to be secured individually and their security works by basically for proof of work um, blockchain like bitcoin and ethereum it works by having people spend money on wasting lots of compute power right so they spend money on basically keeping a small corner of china very warm (laughs) Um, (laughs) and and that's like that's not That's obviously not such a good idea for a number of reasons, Uh, the main one being that different individual blockchains would each have to add to the heat as they want to make, make themselves more secure because they can't share in the other blockchain security. If I launch a blockchain, I can't share in Bitcoin security unless I can persuade all of the Bitcoin miners to also mine my chain. And with proof of stake, the problem is the same. So this is a new way of of securing blockchains, but it still suffers from the same problem that you can't easily share the security. If you want to add a new proof of stake blockchain, you also have to find lots and lots of capital, lots of money that will sit behind your blockchain and sort of insist that it's it's valid uh, as they create new blocks and process more transactions. And really what Polkadot The the sort of nice, really important new thing about Polkadot is that it does allow these lots of different blockchains, but it allows them to share in the security. So they can each, by creating more utility, drawing more capital to the system, they each gain additional security.
0: So it sounds to me like there's kind of three main things you're trying to solve. Scalability, interoperability, and then security, uh, which is basically like like reducing startup costs, you know, uh, you know, the way that like Dropbox can do that now, whereas like back in the day, startups would have to spin up their own servers and stuff like that. And just for listeners, kind of like the technical ways this happens and, and tell me if I get any of this wrong, but there's the relay chain where that's where like the communication at the end of the day happens. And then the parachains are like the doctor, the lawyer, or the banker that you talked about And then bridges are where you take the already existing blockchains that are out there and like make it so that they can uh, interoperate in this system. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So something, when I was like thinking about this, I was a little bit like, okay, so how do the chains all talk to each other? Because as far as I understand, I think like you can be in an Ethereum smart contract and call a Tezos contract, or you can be like in ethereum and then make a zcash transaction happen but it is does that mean that you guys have to write instructions for every possible permutation of cross-chain communication or is there some way of doing it without like literally how ha- you know because it just seems like that would be a lot of work for every time a new parachain gets added like you'd have to write 50 you know different uh instructions for how to talk to all the other parachains.
2: yeah i mean it's um much of the utility of polka dot is really providing um this housing for new blockchains. That said, Polkadot is by facilitating what we might say is very sophisticated logic, much more so than a typical smart contract. We do we do allow bridges that. Essentially, have to be light clients, right? So they have to be these quite really quite complex pieces of 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 logic that can synchronize to to sort of external chains, be it like Tezos or Ethereum or Zcash or whatever. We 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 allow these light clients to sit actually inside our consensus protocols, inside Polkadot, inside as one of the parachains. Uh, But I don't want to. The point of Polkadot isn't really to have be a lot of bridges. We sort of envision a few bridges, but we don't envision like you know hundreds of bridges in order to connect all of the blockchains. That's um, Polkadot will be much more valuable as as a as a sort of test bed, as a as a as a execution ground for many um, individual sort of uh, domain specific projects to to bring their own logic and actually execute the logic within Polkadot rather than having separate blockchains and sort of having this bridge now for bridges for bridging sort of um existing systems the bridge component itself would int- would uh, would be the um the go between the sort of translator if you like between what will likely be standard messages within polka dot messages that say hey you know i've burnt five Bitcoin tokens, you need to mint five Bitcoin tokens on your side in order to ensure that all of the Bitcoin tokens in the system stay, um, the total number stays the same. Those kinds of messages would be interpreted by the bridge and the bridge would do things like um, unlocking Bitcoin on the Bitcoin chain or transferring Bitcoin that was previously sort of under the permission of the of of the polka dot validators to wherever it was that the parachain that sort of supposedly holds this bitcoin wanted it to go so in essence these messages are being translated by the bridge authorities so they're not being um it's not that bitcoin has to learn what these messages are but it's also not that the parachains have to sort of um figure out first hey is it going to bitcoin then we need to send this or is it going to ethereum then we need to send that the messages. Realistically, there will be probably just one or two relatively um, a small, like thin standards for these kinds of messages. Um, they don't need to be very complicated because Polkadot guarantees things like um, that the message will be delivered. It will be delivered once and it will be li- delivered where it needs to go. So you get very, very strong, economically strong guarantees on these messages, which means the messages just need to be kind of like mint five bitcoins because I, I burnt five bitcoins on my side. Beyond that, the bridges. So, new parachains will likely just build these standards into them, but bridges will have to translate between from the standards that that Polkadot has, the sort of Polkadot native messaging, into the um, into some action that can be concretely taken on the on the sort of foreign uh, blockchain like Bitcoin or Ethereum.
0: Okay, but the parachains, it sounds like. Though even just from building them, there will be some like standard way that they'll mm-hmm. communicate.
2: There'll be one or two standardized messages, I'm sure. In the same way that Ethereum, shortly after it launched, um, we standardized the ERC-20 format for, for token contracts. Okay. So there'll be kind of similar similar efforts within Polkadot.
0: And then also, if security is one of the features they are offering, why is it only 50 to 100 validators? Like, Is that decentralized and secure enough?
2: So that won't be that's more as a launch thing with the fact that yeah, there won't be very many parachains chains at launch. It takes time for the ecosystem to build up and therefore there's not really any great need to have a thousand validators on day one. But, um, certainly once the system is, um, fully, um, up to speed, um, we're designing it to have off the order of a thousand, um, validators. And um, will that
0: slow down the block time or, or the communication or anything like that? No, the
2: nice thing is that we have, um, Uh, We've built um, a special sort of new um, protocol hybrid, um, Babe and Grandpa, um, that means um, that it won't slow down. It's actually really um, clever in in how it manages. It basically uh, has adaptive finality. So you'll hear some talk of um, probabilistic finality and of instant finality. So probabilistic finality is basically non-finality. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are examples of these. This is where, as um, new transactions are added, as new blocks are added to the chain, you can never be absolutely certain that those transactions will stay there indefinitely. Could, there's always a small chance that the chain will be reverted, and that instead of those transactions, other mutually exclusive transactions will be will be processed. And this is what we call double spending. Now, the, the newer thing, the, the, the sort of thing that a lot of projects are, uh, uh, that are basing their um, consensus on a, uh, an old algorithm called PBFT, Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerance, th- these projects are claiming instant finality. And what they mean by that is that as soon as the block is produced, so as soon as the transactions are sort of laid out there and published, then the there is a guarantee, an economic guarantee... Um, so, you can be sure up to that someone will have to lose a million dollars or something, that these transactions won't be reverted, that, that the, the block will stay there forever, ad infinitum, that it will never be um, um, sort of moved back and then some other transactions in, uh, placed in its stead. Now, the problem with instant finality is that you don't get any, um, by linking block production, so the creation of this block, Uh, and the transactions in it and finalization. What you're doing is you're saying, right, all of the parties that are needed for finalization and it's quite a complex algorithm. So you need, let's suppose you have a thousand validators. Well, you need two thirds of these validators. So about 680 or whatever to come back and sort of communicate all with each other. (laughs) So they have to send a message to each of the other six hundred and eighty validators and get a response right and then send another message and get um they, these uh this has to happen before the block can be even published right. So rather than in typical systems like Bitcoin, for example, where to mine a block, you really just solve a little numerical problem, rather difficult one as it happens, but still a very small problem that can easily be recognized. And then you just publish it. That's it. Done. There's nothing more than that. In these instant finality systems, it's not actually very instant, right? (laughs) It takes quite a long time for all of this protocol to sort of um, get itself, get its head together and actually make make its mind up which block is going to be next. Because you're tying together finality, which is a much harder thing to do than production, uh, which is very easy. So what we've done here with our hybrid algorithm is split off these two things. So production is still as fast as it would be on Ethereum or Bitcoin. It's a very, it's very easy, simple thing. You just recognize that uh, someone was the right person to create the block at this time, and it's done. And then finality follows it, and if network conditions are good then it follows it really quickly follows it about as quickly as even in instant final instant finalization instant finality but if network conditions are not so good where instant finality would actually just never ever produce anything um it will just sort of lag behind a bit more right so um Mm. there will be an extra let's say 10 or 50 blocks that are sort of almost certainly final but not definitely definitely final and that if you're using it for like low amounts of 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 um transactions like uh, sorry low value transactions like you're buying a cup of coffee it really doesn't matter and you just trust it Uh, but if it's uh if you're using it to transfer you know Hundred million dollars, and you want to make sure you got the hundred million dollars before you let go of the brief, (laughs) the suitcase of cash, and the guy goes off on his merry way. Then you would wait for the fifty or whatever blocks before you get guaranteed um, finality. So what this allows us to do is to increase the number of validators so we can decentralize further. And um, that's um, very much opposed to the fast finality route or so-called instant finality route where you have to keep the number of validators low because you can't produce even blocks without having all of these guys basically talk to each other quite a bit. And that's that can be problematic under certain uh, certain circumstances. If you're talking that there's going to be thousands of validators, um, so Ethereum two, for example, are targeting around I mean vaguely the same sort of numbers, um, one to ten thousand validators. So we we decentralise further in Polkadot though by having a notion of nominators, and nominators allow us to decentralise um, if not the block sort of if not the chains underlying computational maintenance those people who own the servers at least um the uh, funding of the validators so nominators can nominate a number of validators to sort of act on their behalf right so they have some funds they have some capital behind them the nominators and they um in some sense kind of lend it to the validators for the purposes of getting block rewards that the validators would would take and we've got all sorts of economic sort of incentivizations to ensure that, you know, it becomes fair and there's market mechanisms so that over po- overly popular validators don't take, you know, over o- overdue amounts of funds that certain other systems um, suffer from.
0: Yes, which is super important for security. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to discuss governance and substrate after the break. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors.
1: At Consensus 2019, hear news. Predictions and emerging trends from trailblazers like Neil Ferguson, Christine Moy, head of J.P. Morgan's blockchain program, Brian Armstrong, the CEO and founder of Coinbase, and others who are leading the way in blockchain and crypto technology. Participate in a two-day hackathon hosted at Microsoft's Tech Center, where hundreds of developers will compete for $30,000 plus in cash prizes and network with executives, developers. Founders, regulators, investors, government officials, and more. Get your tickets today, as last year this event hit max capacity, and it's getting close to selling out. Just go to www.consensus2019.com to register. Don't forget to use the code Unchained 300 so they know we sent you. Did you know that if money laundering were an economy, its GDP would be the size of Canada's? Large volumes of tainted crypto assets move through financial networks, often below the radar of banks. Cybercriminals use unregulated crypto exchanges to avoid detection. No wonder governments around the world are rolling out tough, new anti-money laundering laws for cryptocurrencies. Complying with those laws isn't easy. Banks and exchanges need the best cryptocurrency intelligence available to avoid penalties. Now you can use the same powerful AML and compliance monitoring tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. To learn more, visit cyphertrace.com unchained.
0: Back to my conversation with Gavin Wood and Jota Steiner of Parity. How does governance work on Polkadot?
2: <laughs> uh, well, we haven't finalized... The governance protocol for Polkadot yet, so everything that I say here is, you know, s- subject to the usual. Um, it needs to be audited. Our research team needs to sort of <laughs> say that it's say that they're happy with it. But um, I can I can certainly talk about what we have so far. So in uh, Polkadot, in the current proof of concept, we have a if you like, kind of buy. Cameral system in some sense. Uh, on the one hand, we have the legislature, which is the um, group of people that, or group of accounts, whatever, economic entities, that um, can sort of pass new laws, so to speak, which in the context of Polkadot means having this kind of super user administrative privilege to alter the code of the chain and potentially also alter storage aspects of the chain, alter the state of the chain. Now, altering the code of the chain might mean fixing bugs. It might mean uh, rolling out upgrades. It might mean uh, correcting for previous for the for the problematic actions of previous blo- bugs. Now, I mentioned there was there were two houses. So the other one is kind of this notion of the council. So the council can be viewed upon as a um, an executive body within Polkadot. And what the council um, the council gets a few sort of bonus um, actions that it can take. So the council can put forward proposals for the legislature to vote on. So, in some sense, it's a little bit like the UK's government, where the 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 parliament um, has has the um, which is a house of around six hundred and fifty, or well, the House of Commons at least, uh, has about six hundred and fifty people in it, and they can um, pass new laws um, through a majority vote. And then the government or the current sort of executive, which is around 100 to 150 of these people, um, are the ones that can sort of propose by and large. They're the ones who can control the timeline that that votes, um, that particular proposals for votes uh, happen. There's a few interesting tweaks, though, that we've made. So while the legislature is, uh, I mentioned that it was sort of um, a large body referendum. So it's a referendum... um, uh, of token holders. So everyone who holds dot tokens on the Polkadot system would in principle be able to vote on on measures. And their votes are weighted according to the number of dot tokens that they hold. Um, but they're also weighted according to a second thing, which is the period by which they um, are happy to, to hold their dot tokens, to hodl their dot tokens, right? To not sell, to not move them elsewhere. So as holders are more committed to the platform, so they they give up the optionality of removing themselves from the platform. Um, they become uh, they get a greater amount of voting power. Furthermore, there's another interesting sort of tweak um, that we've made to the referendum system, which is that there's a period between the the end of the vote and the enactment of that. Vote so that whatever the proposal, assuming it passes, of course, whatever the proposal um, was uh, was proposing, um, there is a period between deciding that it will be put that that it will be enacted and actually enacting it. It's about two weeks. During this period, those who voted in approval of it. Are not allowed to move their tokens at all, right? So there, there's a minimum kind of lock period of this two weeks before it's enacted, and also during the two weeks, those who voted against it and those who didn't vote at all are able to move their tokens. They're able to sort of uh, say, "Well, you know, we think this is a terrible, terrible decision for the system, and we're going to move everything that we have out of the system. We're going to sell up. We're going to go potentially. We're going to hard fork. Who knows?" And this is meant as a means of uh, mitigating things like vote buying. Since we are um, coin holder oriented, everything in Polkadot is decided ultimately by the um, by the set of, of uh, coin voters, weighted according to their commitment to the platform. We want to ensure that those holders, um, that basically third parties can't come in, buy a bunch of or loan out a bunch of tokens, throw a particular proposal, and then exit without paying any costs. Uh, We want to ensure that no one's going to want to loan these guys any tokens for the purpose of uh, sort of destroying the system through a bad proposal.
0: And also, why did you guys decide on like this kind of, you know, more activist and basically on-chain governance? As we know, this was something where like, I I know the Ethereum system actually decided, okay, we're going to do off-chain. Like, why did you decide to go this direction?
2: So I view, I view governance as a I view governance as a, as a problem of trust. So in much the same way that Bitcoin solved the trust of currency, of, of being able to send tokens without having to trust banks or, or a central um, coin issuer. In the same way, Ethereum uh, is trying to solve the trust of, of law, right, of, of counterparty risk and so on. I view governance as another one of those issues. Um, it's It's a trust of a of a process, right? It's the trust of um, that whoever is has the authority or whoever whichever assembled actors have the collective authority to alter a system, to, to do things that the system you know wasn't in some sense designed to do. It's a problem of trusting that they won't act in a way that is against your your wishes uh, without giving you a chance to kind of exit or uh, or at least have some sort of say proportional to what your expectations would be. So it's it's about making open and transparent the process for how the system will change over time. Now, off-chain governance isn't really a thing. Off-chain governance is really just saying, well, we don't want to have very transparent processes. We don't want to have a means of ensuring that the rights and obligations of the various actors in the system are clear what we want to do is kind of just have everything be quite vague and then the current polity as it stands the current people who are essentially in charge and hold the cards and have the power uh, will just sort of we believe that that system should just keep going so i view off-chain governance really as a we don't want to tackle the problem because we're quite happy with the problem being there I see on-chain governance as a means of solving the issue of transparency and openness in exactly the same way that smart contracts solve um, the transparency and openness of counterparty risk and all the rest of it, and in the exactly the same way that Bitcoin solves the transparency and openness of currency and, and, and uh, having to, yeah, sending value across the internet. The only question in my mind is, can we? Are we clever enough um, in order to be able to design these rules, these hard rules, by which um, uh, a system like, you know, Ethereum or Polkadot or whatever else, um, should be governed? on day one. I have no doubt that we will solve it over time. Like we experiment, we find out what works. Uh, but the question is whether we can sort of get something that more or less works or at least works, works as well uh, on day one. And that's really the the challenge for us now.
0: So one thing I was wondering was like, if I'm a developer, when will it make more sense for me to build an idea as a DApp on Ethereum versus as a parachain on Polkadot? So, I mean, one thing that's why we hit, Today,
3: I guess one thing we're putting out, um, very soon is, um, Substrate, um, that framework that we've been developing to make it easy to building blockchains. It's used in Polkadot and which is, I think, the best way of getting into it and experimenting, like what you can do with it. Um, you can also use it, like, without tying into the Polkadot framework and, some people are doing that as well. But it's really like our learning from having built a bunch of blockchains and like making that easy to, uh, to come up with your own ideas and use like the networking stack and whatnot um, without having to build it yourself. So I think now is actually a pretty good moment of um, starting to experiment with it, even though it's still a bit uncertain when exactly the launch is going to be.
2: Yeah. So the difference between smart contracts and building your own sort of DAP chain. So Polkadot parachains are really designed to be fully fledged blockchains which means they do they do one very particular domain specific thing and they do it well. They don't suffer from a lot of the restrictions that you would have on a smart contract system. So there's a notion and we were uh, you know during my time at Ethereum we were we were happy to sort of have this notion sort of be uh be, be trumpeted from the from the rooftops, that a smart contract system can do anything. You can do anything in smart contracts. It's Turing complete. You can do absolutely anything you want. It's not true, really. While it is Turing complete, it has a very, very particular limitation. And, you know... I, was, I did mention this at the time, so I don't, I don't consider myself one of the worst offenders. But the, um, the limitation is gas, right? There is this notion of um, computational resources that your smart contract can never not respect, right? If it runs out of gas, then it, it stops and everything gets reverted, right? So um, when you write smart contracts, you have to be very, very careful that they don't use more gas than they're allowed. And this is necessarily the case. Um, smart contract systems are... A smart contract blockchain like Ethereum is um, heavily, heavily constrains its users, heavily constrains the logic that can operate on it um, by having this notion of gas. The gas becomes an economy in and of itself. So, users of smart contracts don't pay the operators of smart contracts. So, if I publish a smart contract, I don't get well. I don't. I don't automatically get paid for when a user uses it Um, rather users of smart contracts pay ethereum miners and the ethereum miners are the ones that take that profit what this means is that as a dap there are three people to the party when you would really prefer there just be two right you want yourself and your users but ethereum forces you to have the ethereum miners to the party as well right and they get a cut of anything that you and your users are doing we designed it in this way because you know we wanted the ethereum token to be you know valuable and this is one of the ways that you make it valuable but the problem is that for DApps, it, it often makes it just way too expensive to do anything because you're forcing your users to pay for every single transaction they make with the smart contract. And most of the time, not only will they have to pay the Ethereum miners, but they'll also have to pay you for whatever services that your smart contract offers as well. Mm. So everything just becomes way more expensive, partly because you have to pay the existing Ethereum infrastructure to keep doing its job. Now, um, if all you're doing is transferring money, like on Bitcoin, then, you know, hey, whatever, it's just a sort of small percentage, we don't really mind, because compared to the existing use case... That percentage will be way higher, so it looks good. But when you're talking about smart contracts and there isn't, you're not necessarily transferring money. You're like, I don't know, messing around with crypto kitties or something. Suddenly, these transaction fees, they don't look so 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 nice, especially when you're trying to get it into into the hands of people that are used to having literally everything for free because they're using Zuckerberg or, or, or Sergey Brin, Larry Page's sort of offerings. So what we do in Polkadot, what Polkadot facilitates, very much unlike smart contracts, is to to return it back to a two-actor economy again. You've got your users and you've got yourself. Right, So when you put forward a, um, a parachain, a DAP chain or whatever, then you don't have to care about the polka dot miners. They do their job, but they don't take any cut of your economy. Your economy stays your economy until you want to communicate with other parachains. And then we can talk about you know what the, the might be fees associated because then the polka dot guys are actually doing some job for you. They're relaying your messages. Uh, but as long as you sort of stay within your your yourself, then you... You don't pay any extra. There's no extra tax. So the main distinctions between smart contracts and parachains are really this notion that you can control your internal economy that much better. You, you don't have to sort of um, leak funds out to the, to the sort of system um, for, the, uh, for the purpose of securing um, uh, your, um, uh, your logic. Um, that happens anyway, that you can sort of get that for free. Now, the distinction, of course, is the sort of flip side of the coin is you have to pay for one of these parachain slots up front. You pay through it through depositing dots. You get them back at the end of it, but in some sense there's opportunity cost, right? You can't sell them and stick the money in a high-interest account. You have to actually yeah. stick them in, in the system and lock them there until your parachain's done. So it's really offering a, um, a, a, a very different economic um, proposal and that means that some systems some uh, dapps will be uh, more than happy to stick with the smart contract system those dapps are the ones where you know it's just a guy they want to push out some interesting logic and they want users to basically pay for themselves they just want to fire and forget there's some logic we're done we're, we're out of here you use it as you want whereas the uh, the dapps that really want to optimize everything, they want to build a a real sort of solution um, and they want to um, continue interacting with their users and and generate a sort of internal economy, for them, parachains are a more interesting um, proposal because they will be happy to put forward the initial capital on the basis that they will be able to have full control over the economics with their users.
3: I think that notion of economy also indicates like it's not going to be just a simple that does this, like that just needs some simple logic on chain, but rather like more like the domain specific all the bankers or like so it's not as adapter. like we won't see at least until we have like hierarchical chains in in polka we won't see like one app one chain one parachain but rather a protocol that develops for example oh that's
0: interesting so there will be like parachains and then there will be smart contracts within each of those
2: yeah mm-hmm. so that's right there'll be some parachains that that you know will be domain specific but the domain will be hosting smart contracts There'll be other parachains, perhaps ones that just host assets. So there's Mm -hmm. just an assets parachain. And you can put any assets that you want on there and sort of shift them around and stuff. Um, But uh, they don't deal with any additional logic. If you want additional logic, you move the assets somewhere else.
3: Yeah. If you think of the current crypto economy, I guess like there could be a Zcash-like chain, a Bitcoin-like chain, a a smart contract-like chain. So that's sort of what we're going to see initially rather than an app-specific chain until the apps become really big and it then makes sense for them to... Like, try to have their own parachain slot because then the overhead um, becomes too big.
0: Okay, yeah. Well, this was my next question. Like, what the vision of many, or future vision of many parachains looks like is it just what you described, or is there anything else to it? I mean, that's the next couple of years until the system
3: becomes more hierarchical. Like, I mean, the idea is in the future there will be like a relay chain of relay chains, like scaling it out, and, and then it becomes. Much, I mean, also as more libraries develop, like it, as it becomes easier to also be a parrot, and it's probably gonna look more um, granular, more more sort of depth specific. But in the near term, it's more domain specific.
0: Um, what we're going to see. All right, and you mentioned substrate, which you guys have built, and it's sort of like develop developer tools, which make it easier for people to build things on Polkadot, as far as I understand. So. What are some of the different customizable features that people can implement using Substrate? So you could use it just as a tool for
3: um, building your own uh, completely new blockchain, completely independent of Polkadot, your own consensus, whatever that might be, or um, you use it. Oh, okay. M- I'm sorry. So I thought it was just for Polkadot, but it's for any blockchain. No, it's for, any, it's oh, for anything. Okay. So that's, uh, that's also why we why we're doing this event now like to make people more aware that this isn't like substrate and dot are two different things in that sense. I mean, most people who will develop a parachain will probably use substrate, but they're even that they're not obliged to do that. They could also become a parachain without using substrate, but it is a helpful tool um, in both directions.
2: So we're actually building dot with substrate. So not only will substrate be used for creating parachains on dot, but the relay chain itself is a substrate chain. And so this allows us to kind of let the snake eat its tail and we circle back and make the relay chain be itself a parachain and we could sort of ha- make it all hierarchical and recursive. And
0: Yeah. I heard you say, I don't remember where this was, that it's sort of like you just like food waste. And as you were building it, you wanted to like make sure, you know, the code, you know, that the work kind of like accomplish more, which I totally understand. That was like, I'm so with Gav on this concept. <laughs> So one other thing that's really cool about it is that I guess it enables people to then upgrade their networks without hard forks. So what are some examples of things you can change using Substrate without a hard fork that like now you would need a hard fork to accomplish?
2: Well, so there's an interesting, basically you can do anything. The only thing that you can't touch is the um sort of core underlying consensus mechanism. so if we use, most of the most chains I expect will use this kind of hybrid babe and grandpa that I mentioned earlier, but you can change things like the staking algorithm, so you can say right, well, we want to change it from proof of authority to proof of stake. no problem. Suppose you want to you you initially have a Bitcoin chain so you have like this what what we call unspent transaction output utxo chain um this is a very basic kind of currency chain the initial use case of blockchain suppose you want to add smart contracts to it sure upgrade can do that suppose you want to add governance to it sure upgrade can do that suppose you want to suppose you want to take a uh smart contract chain and you want to add Operations that allow you to do zero knowledge proofs on your smart contracts, sure, can do that. Suppose you want to take a, blo- a Polkadot relay chain, and suppose we, um, the zero knowledge guys, the the Starks or the Snarks guys, make it so that we can interpret Parrot, we can guarantee that parachains are be- uh, 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 being correctly operated, not through actually executing them, which is what we do now. So we have all the validators execute some of the parachains but rather by providing a short proof that they were executed correctly. And this is what the, the some of the latest research on, on the ZK Stark stuff is is, is looking sort of towards. And, uh, you know, it's what Ethereum 2 is also trying to sort of research a bit as well. So suppose we can do that. Sure, we can upgrade that. No hard fork required. So basically we can do anything. We can change the entire nature of a blockchain and we can do so just with a single transaction.
0: So something else that I want to bring up, just because this is out there, is that the community seems to perceive that Polkadot and Ethereum 2.0 will be competitive. And even your employee, Afri Shodan, did write a tweet that framed it in that way, that they are competitive. So do you agree with that?
2: Uh, no, uh, Afri Afri's an outspoken guy. He likes to, he says what's on his mind. He also likes that, to be
0: content. <laughs> and he does enjoy
2: uh, the occasional <laughs> argument, it must be said. So no, I mean, Afri, Afri speaks for himself and we, we we have a general sort of rule at parity that, you know, don't say anything stupid. But, you know, we're, we're also not going to require that you toe the company line. Um, you are on people, you know, we trust you're going to be sensible. Uh, but no, it's not a it's not a sentiment we agree with um, at all. I mean, I was chatting to Vitalik last week in Singapore, um, and it you know it was pretty clear that we we agree on most things regarding um, Polkadot Ethereum too. Um, they're different systems, really designed and geared for different things, with different development timelines and different ways of solving a problem. Yeah. So it's they are very much different things. Now, of course, there's some. In some sense, every project that has a token in the space is competing with each other. Right? There's a leaderboard of tokens, right? I mean, there's market <laughs> right. caps, and you know right. you want yours to go near the top. So, of course, there is a very um, sort of base level uh, amount of competition. But um, we see more as competition, at least with uh, the you know the projects that aren't that don't try and keep everything to themselves. We see that competition as being healthy and as being as having only partly competition and partly cooperation. And as, as we sort of mentioned, um, in the Singapore, um, chat, it's, uh, we're working on quite similar things, zero knowledge proofs being one of them, some of the crypto, um, being another. And it's, um, you know, because we're both projects that, that, develop in an entirely open fashion, it's perfectly reasonable that that as much as we're in competition, we're in cooperation because we're going to, you know, use each other's ideas in pushing forward the technology in general.
0: Yeah. I I mean, looking at it just on a technical perspective, they don't seem obviously competitive. However, it does look like, because Polkadot operates kind of like at a lower level, that it could uh, make Ethereum sort of less important, uh, which is maybe... You know, I think that's where some of the fear comes from. But I guess we've but seen like similar thinking going on when Ethereum came along, and people were
3: like, "Oh, this is now ge- more general. Like, will this make Bitcoin obsolete?" But I feel like,
0: yeah, yeah no, it, Bitcoin it's, is still three and half, more or less exactly. actually Bitcoin's position. Yeah, but one other thing that I want to ask about was, what is Dot and who's behind it? Are you guys we related to that? We don't know. <laughs> you don't know. No. no, I saw a theory on Twitter that it was offering, but you don't, you don't know. No
2: where i'm not told of anything to do oh, with it um okay. it's uh i I'm, I'm you know i'm kind of interested to see what 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 it is myself um, all right but uh yeah if you if you find out let me know please <laughs> okay
0: yeah i haven't really looked into it but i thought you guys would know because you know dots and whatever anyway let's talk about the frozen funds there is potentially a way to access them in the future what is your best argument for why that should happen I think the the biggest contention in
3: general around this is, to to my mind, like around how how mature do people actually perceive the technology is, and like some people think, like, oh, we've come to a state where we shouldn't change anything anymore because people are relying on like how it's working, and and or people on the other side saying, look, and I think we're more on on that side, like, look, it's still Im- immature technology, like they're going to be bugs. We need we need methods and tools how to fix them. And if we don't, like that's not a good argument for people to come along and, and use use the, the technology. So that's why I'm still confident or like hopeful that we'll find some way. Um, um especially like with the recent um hard fork that included the create two. So you could think of it as if something like this had had existed back then, then the likelihood of the bug uh slipping into the code would have been much lower or like there would have been a way of recreating it and whatnot. So I think like people are starting to appreciate that the way how the virtual machine works and the technology worked at the time um, didn't provide us with the tools for creating smart contracts in a safe way. And so as we develop these and include them, like we should also fix the bugs that wouldn't have existed if we had had the tools at the time.
0: Yeah, I think one of the arguments that I saw against reinstating the funds is that that could lead to a chain split, which, you know, obviously that has happened before Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, which actually didn't have a huge effect on Ethereum. But they were saying that, well, now, if that were to happen, then there would be doubles of all the ERC-20 tokens and the Crypto Kitties and all the games and dApps would have like two worlds. And and obviously, like for something like Die, where, you know, that's kind of a now a big chunk of of the Ethereum ecosystem, that that could be destabilizing there. And, you know, that's supposed to be pegged to the dollar. And anyway, so uh, is there any way to recover the funds without putting all that at risk? I mean, I wouldn't
3: think of it as putting every... I mean, again, like, it's, it's about, like, how much do you care about, like, what's going to be on the platform and, like, how people could use it in the future, like, with finding a solution that doesn't, um, that sounds sensible for people. So, yeah. And I think, like... I mean, the, the discussions we're seeing that um, there is um, there is consensus that, in, like in principle, people feel like the the ownership of, of of tokens should be respected, and that's a principle that that should be leading leading the debate.
2: Yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, Ethereum Classic sort of went its own way, um, and you know, it wasn't that Ethereum was empty at the time. There were plenty of smart contracts, plenty of ongoing projects. Yeah, it was fine. You know, people chose one or the other, and the projects that you know, if they chose Ethereum, then the projects uh, uh, deployments on Ethereum Classic just sort of decayed and crumbled, and everyone forgot about them. So, I don't really see um, that as a particularly salient argument against um, doing anything. I think if there were uh, chain splits, can happen for all sorts of reasons, and um, ultimately, if the right decision is to um, is to propose, you know, some fork in one direction or another, then. Um, I, it wouldn't that that in and of itself wouldn't stop. Um, I don't think it should stop anyone. But I, I think with so this notion of chain immutability, right, is is a bit of a I think it's a bit of a fallacy. I think. Um, chain immutability more or less goes out of the window as soon as you accept that chains can upgrade them, that the chains should be able to be upgraded. And in some sense, um, by placing this difficulty bomb, right, by basically saying that the chain needs to be upgraded or it will just stop, we've already acknowledged that the blockchain must be mutable, right? There must be hard forks. Because otherwise it has a life it has a life expectancy of like six months or a year whatever it is now so something has to change we've already baked that into the protocol the protocol must upgrade the protocol must change the protocol must be mutable so the real the only real question is well does by mutating it do we change people's expectations more or less um, so is the expectation that the chain that you know these funds should be spendable or they should not be spendable who expected them to be spendable and who expected them not to be spendable? What what were those, you know, when this contract went down, what were the expectations that Ethereum would do to it? Now, you can argue this one of two ways. You can take the, to- the sort of absolutist thing was, well, I expect Ethereum to exactly uh, interpret the code and if the code has bugs, then it should interpret those bugs correctly. Or you can take the, um, I think, the much more uh, pragmatist, reasonable sort of point of view, which is that, well, the contract was clearly meant to be a uh, a wallet and it was clearly meant to have the funds in it be spendable by these set of people that are named uh, in the wallet therefore um the expectations should, that ethereum should you know in in principle an immutable ethereum should uphold um, are that the wallet should should be spendable you know, the funds should be spendable in it so i think i think you can't really I think an absolutist point of view falls flat as soon as you say well chain the chain must be upgraded and at that point you just have to go to what are the expectations and i think reasonable people coming to the system would expect that in this wallet the funds should be spendable
3: and yeah. i mean it's like all the debates um that came also afterwards i mean so yeah, what you're saying is basically one 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 camp is oh you should only do technical upgrades basically and but what's a technical upgrade really? Like no, there are no like every every upgrade or every change that you do has like some some aspect of oh there's uh, you 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 give some preference to someone and maybe some preference to somebody else and you you need to always make like it's never just a technical technical decision that that you make and and finding a way of integrating those
0: decisions is, I think, key. Otherwise, everything will will stall. Yeah, it's political in some sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, to go back to Gab's point, this just reminds me, like, right after the DAO, nobody could, well, or the DAO incident, I'll just call it, nobody could figure out whether or not to actually call it a hack, Mm -hmm. because the code allowed them to do, you know, it was just like this funny thing where people started to use that word, and then other people were like, well, technically, you know, because it wasn't like they broke into anything, they just, like, did what the contract allowed them to do. Um, all right. Well, uh, we've gone way over time, but this has been a fabulous conversation. Uh, where can people learn more about you, Parity, Polkadot, and Substrate? Um, come to our website, follow the the Twitter uh, Twitter accounts, uh, and what's the URL? Parity.io, and the Twitter is Parity Tech. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Thank Laura. Well. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Gavin and Yota and Parity and Polkadot and Substrate, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet signed up for my email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to get my thoughts on the top crypto stories of the week. Be sure to check out our new channel on YouTube. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallapali, Fractual Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.